As we enter into the second wave of this pandemic, we are increasingly thinking about its long-term consequences for Canadian society and humanity as a whole. In this second season of The Public Discourse, we have been looking ahead to the kind of society we want to create when we emerge from this crisis. An important dimension of this process is the need to make meaningful changes to our relationship with the environment. The climate crisis and our unsustainable exploitation of the Earth's resources demand new forms of collective action if we are to build a new future for humanity. But how can we generate collective action on a large scale? Where can we find hope and inspiration to build a better future? You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. I want to welcome Paul Hanley and Thomas Homer Dixon to this episode of The Public Discourse. I'm delighted you're able to join us. Well, thanks for having us. It's such an honor to have you both. Um, Paul, you are the author of Man of the Trees, about Richard St. Barb Baker and Eleven, which you describe as a call to consciousness to live in a world of 11 billion people. And Thomas, you have published a number of best-selling books, including The Upside of Down and The Ingenuity Gap. And your most recent book is called Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. On this podcast, we usually invite our guests to introduce themselves. So would you each please say a few words about where you're from and anything else about yourself that you would like to share as we start our conversation? Paul, would you like to go first? Oh, sure. Yeah, so I'm uh, Paul Hanley, and I'm, I was born and raised in Saskatchewan. I've lived there all my life and uh, grew up in a city, but became kind of enchanted with uh, gardening and agriculture oddly enough, and took this a real interest in environmental issues, and I've been writing about them for a long time. Recently, I moved to Molokai on Hawaii, kind of engaging with people there on some of the same issues and how we build a sense of community that I think then becomes reflected in the, in the natural world around us. Hi, I'm Tad Homer Dixon, and uh, I'm currently on Vancouver Island, south coast southwest coast of vancouver island and recording this from a little cabin on a cliff overlooking the sea i grew up on vancouver island and then went out east for over 40 years to study and work in the united states i did my doctorate at mit in international relations and came back to canada to work at the university of toronto uh, running the program in peace and conflict studies at u of t for many years then in 2008, I went to the University of Waterloo, where I focused on issues relating to complex system science and how societies respond to the critical stresses they're facing, how they innovate or sometimes don't innovate. I've been very interested in societal failure to deal with major problems like climate change and the energy transition. And uh, in the last year, uh, my family and I, we've come back to uh, Vancouver Island, and I'm now running a new research institute that focuses on how to accelerate uh, positive change for humanity. It's called the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University. 
Uh, so the intention of the Cascade Institute is to try to produce, uh, to try to identify what we call high leverage intervention points, which are ways of uh, uh, shifting humankind's trajectory as quickly as possible, for instance, to respond to the climate change problem. Wonderful. I am thrilled to be able to talk to you both as an environmental scientist myself. But <laughs> mm. Paul, if I may start with you, I wanted to ask you about values and principles. In the book 11, you wrote about how our dominant global culture leads us to pursue perpetual material growth, and this demands a cultural transformation. So what are the values and principles at the heart of that needed transformation? Mm. And where do you see them in action today? Well, uh, I guess one of the things I talk about in, in 11 is the idea that that our, our outer world, our, our natural environment is a reflection of our inner world, of, of the kind of human world, the world of our, you know, our, our relationships, the set of relationships we have, and also our relationships with ourselves. So uh, I think when human societies are kind of fractured and we're governed by all these isms, all the prejudices, the, the racism, the inequalities, the, the classism, and, and also I think uh, nationalism, which is I think one of our last acceptable prejudices. Uh, when human societies are disintegrative and and uh, fractured in that way, then we see the same thing happening in the natural world around us. So in order to kind of restore the balance of the natural world, I think human beings really have to look at themselves and how we can transform our inner world and our relationships. I think when we have values built around unity, and unity is kind of a pivotal principle that everything else revolves around, we create a sense of justice, a sense of equality as priorities. And when we start to build those kind of profound relationships amongst people focused around unity and, and love, really, then we'll start to see the natural world around us transformed as well. So, uh, and where, I think you said, where do you, where do I see those values happening today? I mean, I was an environmental columnist for 27 years and uh, wrote, you know, thousands of articles. And, and it was kind of evenly split between this kind of apocalyptic view of the future, you know, everything is, is falling apart. And then I'd see the other half of the articles were about people doing really amazing things all over the world to resolve these issues. And so I really think that everything that we need to do to make the world a better place, a sustainable and just place is being done somewhere by somebody already. Thomas, I also wanted to ask you because you were known for many years um, as being a pessimist a little bit about various threats to global security. And some of your predictions have come true. And yet your new book is about hope. And that's a concept that is often used in politics, but it is encountered less often in the social sciences. So what does it mean to have hope for a different future? And what do you think should give us hope? It's true that in my earlier books, The Ingenuity Gap, which came out about 20 years ago, and The Upside of Down, which came out in 2006, I, uh, using the best science available at the time and the best social science, I laid out what I thought 
was likely to happen into the 2020s. And uh, many of the forms of social breakdown and radicalization and environmental crisis that I anticipated then are starting to unfold now. I was called very often a doommeister. Uh, I don't seem to get that label as often these days. Those books were really intended to be uh, diagnostic, try to unpack the underlying causes and mechanisms of the crisis that humankind faces on a planetary level. Uh, at this point, though, I think the diagnosis is relatively clear, and and I I, I felt that especially for my children, Sarah and I have uh, a daughter, Kate, who's twelve, a boy, young man now, uh, Ben, who's fifteen. Especially for my children, I needed to focus on their future and and how they could have a sense of positive possibility of hope for the future. I realized actually in this very spot where I am right now on this cliff, Southern Vancouver Island in 2016 or so, that the thing that gave me the most anguish, the thing that, that gave me the most personal distress was the possibility that my children would grow up, would emerge as adults into a chaotic, turbulent, and potentially very violent world without a, a sense of hope. And, I, and for me that as a parent, and I think this is true for all parents, that was just unimaginable. So I decided to, I don't, I'd been working on the book for many years at that point. I decided to change direction, started it twice. I threw out tens of thousands of words. At that point, I realized it had to be about hope. And I was not getting a lot of encouragement from folks at that point to write about hope, you know, because hope, hope is a, it's, it's not only an idea that doesn't get a lot of attention in the social sciences, although it does, I think, within certain segments of psychological science, especially, especially positive psychology, but it's received kind of a bad rap recently in public discourse as, as an emotion that's passive, weak, that's distracting, that maybe encourages us to fantasize about the future without actually engaging. And I decided that we needed to, in a sense, reinvent hope to think about it in new ways, to reimagine it and make it a very powerful concept in our lives, which is why the book is titled Commanding Hope. It's a double entendre. The notion of hope that I develop is one that commands our attention. But also there's this underlying idea that hope is something that we can make do our bidding in a sense. It's an emotion that we can, we can reformulate, we can recast and command it in a sense to be a powerful emotion that works on our behalf to help us address the challenges we face and, and remain agents as uh, we tackle probably the biggest crisis that the human species is ever going to face. This century is absolutely, absolutely critical for our survival. And uh, you know, I spent the last part of the book trying to, trying to identify why I think there are real grounds for hope especially in the possibilities of new value systems to link with what Paul has just been saying, new value systems, new understandings of our identity on this planet that could uh, really galvanize large numbers, billions of human beings to push, push in new directions to break out of this crisis that we're in right now. And speaking of hope, you know, and reinventing hope, <laughs> Uh, Paul, uh, you have been also involved in a project that was recently selected as a finalist for the Rockefeller Foundation's um, Food System Vision Prize. Can you talk a little bit about some of these concepts and relationships that 
are at the core of this vision for food security in Treaty 4 territory? Yes. Uh, well, interestingly, the, the, this relates to what Thomas has been saying, but the Rockefeller Foundation did a actually did a kind of a study of uh, visions of the future, and most of them are found in science fiction, speculative fiction, movies, and and uh, books, and so on. And they found I think it was ninety four percent of those you know, visions of the future are negative, and so they were concerned about the same idea of of having a hopeful vision of the future. So they uh, created this opportunity for people to come up with food system visions. And they got something like 1,300 visions from all over the world, way, way more than they were expecting. So that was a good sign in itself. Our vision, uh, which we focused around Treaty 4 territory, which is in the, the southern Canadian prairies, we focused around the idea, uh, some concepts in Cree, which are Wakotuan, uh, and Wakotuan is a word that, the best I can understand it, is a is a word uh, that relates to a law about the relatedness of all things. So they talk about how all human beings are related, but also related to the four legged to animals, to plants, to even to the mineral world. And so th this idea of this unity of all of all things was central to the idea. And then Kwaskastasawan is about uh, setting things right or proper. So the concept is by by kind of a connecting to this concept Wakotun of the unity of all things, and kind of making that central in our thinking and our actions, we can make things right again. So when we looked at our food systems and the problems that that are involved. We had to go right back to the period of colonialism, and it seemed that the the colonial model that was uh, imposed on the prairies really was the source of all the problems that we're having today in in terms of creating a just and sustainable food system. So we wanted to um, build a vision of hope, a, a sort of a systems vision, and uh, it, it became a you know a very complex map that we created. But it was really about this idea of, I think, changing the nature of human relationships, especially the relationship between settler populations and indigenous populations. But we thought that, you know, undertaking a process of creating a, a profound conversation between people in the, in the region would ultimately lead to uh, ways of resolving our, our problems in our agriculture and food system. So we actually came up with 140 lines of action and mapped them all out, and and we're successful. And there there are 10 uh, finalists in this um, food system vision prize. And interestingly, they're all looking at in in different ways. I think at, at a similar kind of approach. Many of them dealing with the relationships with indigenous people in their areas, and so it's actually together they make really kind of an exciting. Uh, vision of, of, of hope for the future in this area of food and agriculture, which is really central to, uh, to moving forward as a society. Yes, it's, it's really fascinating to hear more and more about, you know, things that give us hope as we also redefine it, like Thomas mentioned. <laughs> and we look at it as a very broad and important quality that we all need to undertake. And uh, Thomas, Paul spoke about connection and relationships. You wrote 
about something similar, but on a larger scale in your book, Commanding Hope. You wrote, humanity can't and won't address its urgent challenges unless enough of us from a broad range of cultures and societies recognize ourselves as one group with a shared sense of identity, facing these challenges and developing solutions together. Can you elaborate on this idea of we-ness and how it relates to addressing our environmental challenges? So I, I'm so glad you asked that question. And it's one reason I was very excited about this interview today. I'm not a member of the Baha'i faith, but I've had very close friends over the years who are. I've visited the gardens in Haifa, for example. And one thing I've always admired, and which I just understand is at the core of the Baha'i faith, is this sense of unity of humankind. And uh, a really profound sense of what I would call, I've started to call in my own work, deep relationalism, the connections among things. And I think that part of the transition we're going through as a species, and it has to happen very rapidly, and that seems, I think, to be captured by Paul's project from the way he described it is this uh, connectivity, the connectivity among individuals, the connectivity of human beings to their natural world. I think that part of the power of Western civilization in uh, becoming a dominant civilizational culture on the planet through its technologies and economic systems has been uh, basically seeing things as distinct, breaking things apart, uh, severing some of those connections. Uh, the the, the rational individual in the market, the scientific processes of analysis, uh, reduce things to their part and then understand how they, they are in their intrinsic properties and then combine them back together into, into systems. But this, this process of, of identifying sort of the intrinsic properties of elements of, of the constituents of systems has been very powerful within our institutions, within our scientific and knowledge systems and has allowed us to create ways of manipulating nature and exploiting and dominating nature and also frankly manipulating, exploiting and dominating human beings to uh, transform the planet. But I think we've reached perhaps the end of that process in some very powerful ways because we are, we are not just transforming the planet, we're now destroying the planet. And, we're, and, and the divisions between us have become so deep and profound that we can't understand each other effectively anymore. One of the really striking things, for instance, about this political situation in the United States and increasingly around the world is how different groups live in their own, what I would call epistemic bubbles, basically isolated knowledge systems. So we need to develop new ways of connecting with each other. So at the core of my notion of hope is a, a sense of uh, understanding our relationships with each other, that we can only really see who we are as individuals if we understand how we're embedded in larger communities and larger systems, including natural systems. Human, human civilization can't survive if those natural systems start to fall apart, and they are starting to fall apart now. So I think, you know, to gain to link to what Paul was saying, the, the, I think the indigenous communities around the world uh, have almost invariably had this very profound sense of connectedness to their natural environments. And we have much to learn, I think, from those communities about how to reinstill this, uh, this sense of embeddedness in nature, 
cooperation, collaboration with nature, the importance of nature flourishing, that to the extent that nature flourishes, we flourish. We have much to learn from those indigenous cultures uh, and we need to learn it fast. My biggest concern, just to conclude this, this comment, is that the problems are now happening so fast that the responses that we're engaged in, whether it's in Saskatchewan and food systems or in the lowest plateau or what we're trying to do with the renewable energy transition are not happening anywhere near as fast as we need to, but things are actually spiraling out of control. And while we are starting to make some of the critical changes we need to make, they're not they're not going to be in place quickly enough to stop that death spiral, which seems to already be underway. So that's that's where we now have to start thinking about more radical actions, perhaps more radical transformations, for instance, of human of human thinking and of, of, uh, of our global culture. And just continuing with with this idea of weeness and oneness that um, you touched upon, Paul, someone who was inspired by this vision of weeness or what he may have called oneness was Richard Saint Barr Baker. And Baker was known as the man of the trees for his work, you know, addressing forest loss. And he was inspired by the Baha'i teachings. What do you think his life and work can teach us today about working towards a new relationship with humanity and the natural environment, just as Thomas was mentioning? Yeah, uh, well, Baker was was really a pretty remarkable human being on, on many levels. Um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, he was kind of like a, uh, he was a scientist, but he was also a visionary, almost like a mystic and, and a person of action. And I think that, you know, I, I've thought a lot about, you know, looking back on his life and, and what he accomplished. And he was so far ahead of his time. I mean, he was in, he was talking about things like climate change, biodiversity loss, uh, mass migrations of human populations, and so on, but a hundred years ago. And so a lot of the things that he was proposing and putting forward in the, in the discourse, you know, was difficult for people to relate to them. So in his life, there was, I think he had certain accomplishments, but also a lot of frustrations because uh, people just weren't listening. As Thomas said, it, it wasn't happening fast enough. It was hardly happening at all at that time. Uh, but he could see from his experience in Northern Africa, he could see what was coming because there was already this expansion of the desert and people were starting to migrate out of, out of the drier areas. So there was a lot, I think, of frustration in his life. And, uh, you know, related to this idea of hope, I think he never gave up on that hope. But I, I found it was interesting that if you, you kind of look at his, uh, his legacy 40 years after he, he passed away, that it's some, maybe some of the little things that he did that had the most impact. So I, I, in, in writing the book, I, I found out about a number of people, uh, who are active today who were inspired as, as youth or as children by, let's say, a radio interview they heard. Or, uh, this one fellow, for example, he was, uh, he was an Australian and he was, uh, visiting a farm, a neighboring farm, his father was a farmer, and he saw an old pile of books in a shed that this guy had, and he went into the shed, and he saw on top of this pile was a book called Sahara Challenge by Richard St. Barr Baker, and just sort of randomly picked it up and decided to become a forester and became engaged in forest uh, reclamation and uh, desert reclamation in Northern Africa, 
and is very successful in this pursuit. Other people like Felix Finkbeiner, who was a, who was a, a grade school student who heard about Richard St. Baker's work and wrote a paper for his, uh, I think it was fourth grade class, and decided to start a children's movement to plant trees. And they now have something like 46,000 child environmental ambassadors in this organization called Plant for the Planet. So they're, they've taken over the United Nations Billion Tree Program and now are planning to try to plant a trillion trees. So some of the little things that St. Barbaker did, like an interview or a little article he wrote that seemed quite insignificant, turned out to have the most impact. And in a sense, I think probably his legacy is actually his story. Just a, a person who dedicates their entire life, puts everything they've got into this transformative process. How can I contribute in some way? And, you know, up until the time when he was 92 and he was doing his last world tour in a wheelchair, trying to get children to plant trees and so on, and a very kind of almost, there's almost a pathetic quality to his heroism, if I can put it that way, because he was just a shriveled little man, but wouldn't give up. And I think that's that's really an important quality is just to be steadfast and to, you know, continue to, to work towards this goal of uh, a transformation. So, you know, he, for me, he really epitomizes a quality that we really need today. This is so true. And it, it brings together, you know, a lot of these elements that we've talked about that have also been brought up by, you know, either people that through time have taught us so much and have helped us to act. And also now with the pandemic happening, how things are, are being stirred. And, and I think there's more call to action than ever before. And thinking about that, Thomas, in the epilogue of your, of your book, you say that the pandemic could catalyze an urgently needed shift in humanity's collective moral values, priorities, and sense of self and community. Do you have any final reflections that you would like to share on that? The pandemic is a uh, extraordinary moment in human history. Uh, and we aren't really sure what the ultimate consequences will be. Uh, I sort of think of the world up to the time of the pandemic occurred as being quite locked up. It's like all the pieces were kind of locked together and very rigid. And we seem to be on this inexorable trajectory of increasing carbon emissions without any clear sense for how we could get off that trajectory. Inexorable trajectory of increasing damage to natural systems, deepening polarization within our societies, widening gaps between the rich and the poor. And and with the pandemic, it's almost as if all the pieces are suddenly in motion and things have become unlocked. We don't know how they're going to reconfigure themselves completely. I mean, we may go back to something, it's quite likely we'll go back to something that's somewhat similar to the way we were previously with many of its same pathologies. But there are also possibilities now for some more radical reconfiguration and change. I mean, when you think about it, what happened between March, middle of March and the middle of April of this year was unprecedented in the history of the human species. Within a period of a few weeks, almost 4 billion people were locked down on the planet. We've never seen anything like that in the past where such a large proportion of the human population has changed its behavior 
more or less instantaneously like that. So it suggests that there are opportunities for change on the planet that weren't present before. This is a, a, a truly unprecedented moment in, in the history of the species. Uh, we are in a situation, the pandemics made it very clear, we're in a situation of kind of shared fate on this planet. Uh, we either have to fix this problem globally or it's going to continue. And if we don't eliminate the coronavirus or control it in all parts of the planet, it will reemerge and mutate its form and reinfect us. And the same with climate change. We're either going to fix it collectively or we're all going to suffer. People sometimes ask me, where can I go? As in, where can I go when things start to fall apart, when climate change gets so bad and the other problems get so bad that societies start to disintegrate? And when I say, well, there's actually nowhere you can go because climate change is going to affect the whole planet. It affects the whole planet now. So we either are going to, and this again gets us back to the point about a common sense of identity on this planet, a species-wide sense of unity, of we-ness. We're either going to live together and prosper together on this planet, or we're going to die together. And I think that that recognition is starting to emerge in a much more powerful way, in part because of the pandemic. And we, we are also connected together in extraordinary ways around the planet now in terms of our information and material transfers, but mostly our information transfers and communication around the planet. And we have additionally, and finally, this uh, quite clear scientific understanding of the nature of the challenges we face, as opposed to say what was true during the Black Death in early modern Europe, when people really didn't understand what was going on, devastating their societies, we, we actually have, have got that pretty well worked out. And we know kind of what we need to do to solve these problems. So we have the situation of shared fate, we have this extraordinary connectivity and we have scientific knowledge of what we need to do. That puts us in a completely unprecedented situation, which I think creates the opportunity for a major transformation of human civilization. If we take that opportunity, I think that's still very much open, an open question, but it's available to us in a way that's never been true before. And for me, that's a real reason for hope. Well, I agree. <laughs> And I, as we're coming to, to the end of, of our podcast, um, I, I'm just thinking that just like you shared, Paul, sometimes this, the little things can go a long way. And I, I hope that our conversation today can, you know, in a small or a very big way, somehow bring our, our listeners to think about these, uh, about these issues that we've mentioned and the, the things that are required for these changes and this hope to actually emerge um, in humanity and to take this opportunity, like you mentioned, to, to make this much needed change and for us to be agents of it. Um, I want to thank you both for, for your time today. And I don't know if there's any final thoughts that you would like to share before we end. Thanks so much. Yeah, I, th I feel that there is, uh, you know, there are amazing movements happening. I, I'm on the island of Molokai, which is the most Hawaiian of the Hawaiian islands now, and just kind of looking at this kind of movement percolating in the community on, on several different levels, but people really trying to examine how can we make our community sustainable? How can we build the kind of relationships that, that we need? How can we kind of deepen the conversations about these these uh, concerns that we have about the future and especially around the question of children and youth. And, and I find that, you know, that's the thing that really grabs people's attention 
is what are we going to do for our children? What's happening with our children? So I think, uh, you know, there's a great opportunity to focus around the welfare of children and their future. And that kind of wakes people up a little bit, as, as Thomas was saying earlier, and uh, you know, with regard to his own family and how, how that motivates him. So I'm, you know, just at the level of a, of a small community, I'm, I'm seeing that as a, as a kind of an issue that animates people. And I think that's a hopeful sign. To add just two very quick points. Uh, I, I think the Baha'i community has an enormous amount to contribute here. And it's, it's not well understood how Baha'i faith and Baha'i culture have kind of pioneered many of these ideas and concepts. And I think that there's an, an important role for Baha'is to bring this message to the larger world. And in fact, I even considered writing about the Baha'i faith and commanding hope, but I was already way past the length I was supposed to write. So, <laughs> uh, so that's one. And the second, just to pick up on what Paul said, uh, it, it, there's something very interesting happening on islands around the world. Uh, it's true on Vancouver Island where the, the, the green, the progressive green movement seems to be developing much faster than anywhere else, except perhaps Prince Edward Island on the other mm. coast of the country. And then in Hawaii, as Paul was suggesting, on some of the islands there, uh, even in, uh, interestingly enough, the United Kingdom is, is, is way ahead in some ways in terms of its plans on climate change. Mm. So there's something about being on an island that gives people a sense of their, perhaps their vulnerability, but also their sense of common community in facing these issues, which can be uh, potentially, again, communicated more broadly. But, uh, thank you very much for this, been a wonderful conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at oba.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.